Rock is Lit! Welcome to Rock is Lit, the podcast that takes listeners on the quest to find the very best rock novels and explore the propulsive energy and raw power of these stories about music, the people who make it, and the characters who love it. Rock is Lit is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Christy Alexander Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page, from Livingston Press. Find me on Facebook, at Christy Alexander Hallberg, and Twitter and Instagram, at Christy Hallberg. Visit my website, at ChristyAlexanderHallberg.com. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, follow, and spread the word. Hello, lit listeners. We've got one holy hell of a great show for you in this episode. Tony DeShane is here to talk about his novel, Confessions of a Teenage Jesus Jerk, a story that follows a music-loving, libidinous adolescent boy as he navigates growing up as a Jehovah's Witness in California's Bay Area of the 1980s. Tony is the author and award-winning screenwriter of the film adaptation of his novel, Confessions of a Teenage Jesus Jerk, directed by Eric Stoltz and streaming on Amazon Prime. His journalism and essays have appeared in the Los Angeles Times, Mother Jones, Penthouse, The Rumpus, The Believer, and other media outlets. He teaches screenwriting at UCLA Extension, and he was a music columnist and covered books and authors for the San Francisco Chronicle until 2015. He's hosted Drinks with Tony since 2002, a chat show with authors, musicians, and filmmakers. Tony's hard at work on his next novel, Dreamcasting. He lives in East Hollywood, Los Angeles. Welcome to the show, Tony. Why, thank you so much. And I've I've had you on Drinks with Tony because it was conversations with you as well. Yep. Good fun. I had a blast doing that. So I know you're a big fan of Nick Caves. And you've interviewed him and written about him a lot for The Rumpus. But I'm interested to see who else is on your radar. So let's play a set of five questions. What's the first album or record you bought? Oh, as a kid? Um, I, the, oh, okay. I know the first record I bought was Journey Escape, and it was at the grocery store at Safeway. Okay. <laughs> and at, They had albums at the grocery store? Yes. I'm 53, so I don't know. This was in the suburbs of San Francisco. You wow. Can, you can also get, you can get records and cigarettes right next to the uh, clerk. And they had Journey <laughs> Escape. and. I still know every every word to every song on that record because I played it constantly because that was just it was just so foreign to me and I just like I studied it. I think it was I think it was my um I think it was like a a little beacon out of my little Jehovah's Witness world where I can be like, mm. "Oh my god, these guys are speaking to me and they're talking about emotional stuff and I get it, man. <laughs> Don't stop believing. I get it." Oh, was that on that album, that song? Yeah, I think All so, right. yeah. Okay. Yeah. What was your most memorable live music experience? There's this guy, Billy Childish. He was in the uh, these bands, the Headcoats, the Milkshakes, the Mighty Caesars. He did a tour, and I actually covered this tour for the Chronicle around 2004, where it was just him singing his songs very stripped down. Mm. And his wife was with him on the tour. And uh, and I was married at the time. And we were sitting in the front row of this small club. And he was playing like all his hits, but just stripped down. And every once in a while, when he needed a backup singer, his wife was sitting next to us. And she would just sing along. Oh, wow. And I was just, it was just, it was gorgeous. So I'll, I'll say right now in my head, that Billy Childish tour uh, around 2004, 2005. Okay. It was just 
If I can experience that again, I would in a second. really cool he's also he's mostly a painter he's he's an interesting fella he and and he um during the 80s and 90s i mean he was putting out records constantly so he's got a huge back catalog well i know you've interviewed so many people but if you had the opportunity to interview an artist or a band and, and we're going with living or dead here who would it be and what's one question you would ask wow that's a good one um living or dead you know, I never interviewed David Bowie and that, um, and I even saw, I, I saw him live in 1991 and I only knew like let's dance and one other song by him. And it wasn't until about five years ago that I, that for some reason I started realizing what David Bowie was and listened to every album front to back. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, I saw him in the nineties and I never saw him again. And what is my problem? And the, he just seems like he was so centered and down to earth as he got older. And even his last record, the one they recorded when he knew he was dying. There's just, when you think about it, there's something so um, just knowing of self. A lot of musicians are pain in the ass to interview because they have that image thing, Uh, especially when I was doing that column for the Chronicle. It's just like I wanted to stab the eyes out of every 10 bands I covered. It's just like, it's just like, stop it. You're, you're going to be an accountant in two years and the band's breaking up. I can tell, but um, yeah, but, but something with David Bowie, uh, he's, he just feels like he's on a different level, not just as a musician, but kind of as a human, but also not on a different level where he's above you, but a different level where he's going to be right next to you. And those are the conversations I love to have. I wish I can talk to David Bowie. What would I ask him? Um, well, if I could ask him where, if I can ask him now, how's it going after death? Where, where do we go? If it was now, that's what I would ask him. If, if, yeah, that would be the question. If it was before he died, um, you know, the question I would ask would be, how are you doing? And I think he would tell me the truth and that would start an interesting conversation. Um, I, I, I don't have any burning I think I would get more knowledge out of him if I just asked how he was doing instead of researching a question because this because he'll have a real conversation with you if you're not blowing smoke up his ass. It's kind of the same as Nick Cave, which I realized over the years. Don't blow smoke up his ass and um, and don't tell him what uh, and don't ask him what his songs mean, and you'll get a great conversation with him. You've interviewed him so many times. Well, three, at this but point. it's it's three more times than I ever thought I would have in my life. So. Yeah. <laughs> And he is one of your favorite musicians, isn't he? He's he's carried me. So the first time I saw him was in 1990. 
and I only mm-hmm. knew two songs from him. And and uh, it was right when I started doing college radio, and everyone at the college radio station was like, "God, we gotta go." And I'm like, "Okay." And I went, and I saw this. I saw this band. Then I was just, I was fresh out of leaving the Jehovah's Witness just just for a few months, and then I went back to the Jehovah's Witnesses because I because I was scared. But I saw Nick, and I saw the band, and they were all dressed in suits, and they were singing. It was almost like a church. And they did sing about the Bible, but it was like violent, fucked up uh, lyrics. And the energy was just, it, it changed me. Wow. And after that, I went to the radio station and we used to have different production studios. So I, I went and bought a ton of cassettes and I just recorded every album of his from the production studio mm. and, and learned everything about him. So by the time he came around in 1992, I knew every song and then I just saw him over and over. What's on your playlist now? You know, I've been, I've been listening to a lot of like hip hop and uh, it's because that's alternative music to me, you know. Um, so mm-hmm. I've been listening to a lot of uh, Kendrick Lamar. I even bought uh, okay. I bought uh, his vinyl. I've been listening to Most Def. Um, who else is on there? Big Sean. I mean, you know, these are all like top 40. And it's just funny because everyone else knows him. I'm like, this is no, this is alternative music to me. And it's really good. I come from a generation of pain will murder his minor. Rebellious and more jealous, a chip you for designer. Belt buckles and cloud overzealous and prone to violence. Make the wrong turn. Be your will of the will alignment. Residue burn. Missed at the inner city. Miscommunication to keep homo detector busy. No protection is risky. Desensitized, I vandalize pain. Covered up and camouflage. Get used to hearing arsenal rain. Analyze rich- And, you know, Nick Cave's still on the playlist. Um, and. I mean, I was just right before we came on. I was listening to Metallica, Master of Puppets. I've been uh, so. Oh yeah, wow! Okay. Just, you know, it's it's all over the place. So. Yeah, eclectic taste, but I would expect that from you. <laughs> <laughs> or schizophrenia, so, maybe it's that. <laughs> uh, so, which artist or band would you like to see featured in a rock novel in some capacity? Uh oh, interesting. Uh, well, I'm kind of doing that right now because Nick Cave is a minor character in the novel I'm working on. Mm -hmm. Really? Yeah. That means you have to come back on the show. Okay. (laughs) When, when, yeah, (laughs) when it gets published. So probably 2024, if I'm lucky, you know how that stuff, you know how that stuff goes. I do. It's like submit. Okay, great. Lead time a year. 14 months, but it's all great because that builds the hype amongst the industry. So let's take a short break and we'll be back with Tony DeShane. Hi, this is Tony Duchesne, and you're listening to Rock Is Lit. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, Or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good. Well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. And we're back with Tony DeShane, author of Confessions of a Teenage Jesus Jerk. So I really love this blurb that author Mark Haskell Smith gave you for the novel. Darkly funny and authentically kinky, Tony DeShane's first novel is a surprisingly sweet coming-of-age story told through the eyes of a horny, Jehovah-battered, watchtower-wielding, door-to-door proselytizer, I may never answer my doorbell again. That is just fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. Just kind of says it all. I I like hearing it out loud. Yeah. Mark Mark is great. I adore him. He's been a a friend and mentor for many years. So I love the book. And I, I, you must have had so much fun writing it, just channeling kind of your, no. (laughs) Do tell. No, it's, it was very hard to write the book. Um, I mean, the, the, I you know I know it's comedy, and I know I know there's a there's a light touch to it, but I was breaking open scars and re remaking them bleed, and next it's um this book comes from just utter tragedy and horror, <laughs> and then but I I got to massage it to bring a um bring a lightheartedness to it because. I didn't want to preach. I wanted to just, the whole intent was to set the reader as a Jehovah's witness for as long as they read it and not really give too much judgment and ha- and show the fun that was also involved. But the, my tragedy, I had to pull back a lot from my actual tragedies. So uh, it was a very hard book to write. It wasn't easy in any way at all. There was, there, uh, it was, yeah. Well, this is a testament to your talent then, because it reads like you were having a great time and it's funny and you get into that voice of these teenagers. And I could just imagine you channeling your horny teenage self and and just going there. But but you're yeah, there is heartbreak in it. There's humor and there's heartbreak. And before we go any further I know that your main character, Gabe, grew up in a family of Jehovah's Witnesses, and I know that you were a Jehovah's Witness, but you weren't born into it. How did you get involved? Uh, my parents converted when I was three years old. I was involved almost all my life. I do remember celebrating my last birthday at three. I just vaguely remember that I remember the car that Grandpa Tor got me that I thought was the coolest thing in the world, and then that was the last birthday I ever celebrated. Um, and I probably remember it because it was the last birthday I ever celebrated until, you know, I was later in life. 
What do you know why they got involved with the, with the church? Yeah, um, easy pickings. So they, uh, my parents were teenagers when they had me. I wasn't uh, I wasn't planned, <laughs> and um, and it's you know it's the early seventies, so a lot of their friends are kind of just drugs and not you know not doing a lot, yeah. and they didn't have friends with kids. So when the Jehovah's Witnesses appear at their door. And they're, and they're like, oh yeah, no, there's, you know, they kind of, they, the Jehovah's Witnesses provide you instant community. So when mm -hmm. they went to the Kingdom Hall and they saw all these kids that were, you know, toddlers, they were like, oh my God, here's our community. And so then they studied and they, um, they believed. And then my dad um, started proselytizing to his family and then his family stopped talking to him for like three years. That was kind of how it went. So the, and what I wanted, I mean, and what for the novel, you know, I was channeling the, the, the sense of community and, and the mm -hmm. sense of fun that it is to be a teenager in the Jehovah's Witnesses. But at the same time, if you don't know any different, you don't know that the major premise of what it's built on is horrific, but you, all mm -hmm. you know is the community. So it was, you know, it's like, yeah, I had a hard time writing it, but I was writing in definitely the point of view of someone who just grew up a Jehovah's Witness and was trying to have and was just trying to have fun and enjoying himself and and expressing love in the very little ways that he could um and that's I mean that's what I went through I was just such a romantic kid I was you know I'm I'm engaged to like three people I asked to marry me when I was like between six and nine years old so I don't I'm not sure if they know it's been called off, but I haven't been, I haven't gotten any callbacks yet. So nobody calling asking, where's the ring? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Do you remember when we were sitting behind that car and you asked me to marry you? <laughs> well, I guess you're safe then. Oh, they, it might, it might, maybe, maybe I need to marry one of them. Maybe they're out there. <laughs> maybe it all works out in the end. I didn't really know that much about the Jehovah's Witnesses before I read your novel. And, you know, except that they would occasionally show up at my door when I was a kid, or maybe it was the Mormons. I don't, I don't know which, but um, I'm going to assume that a lot of people listening don't know a lot about the Jehovah's Witnesses either. So I'm going to throw some terms at you from the novel. And the first one has to be Armageddon. Armageddon is coming to destroy everyone who's not a Jehovah's Witness. So it's going to be, um, so God is like worse than Hitler. God is going to have more kills than Hitler. And we're all going to get through Armageddon. And then the Jehovah's Witnesses get to live forever on a paradise earth. Yeah, I, I love it when the characters were out going door to door preaching. And, and one of them was saying, one of the elders was saying, yeah, you know, like if, if they're mean to you, then just think. After Armageddon, we're going to get to live in their house because they're not going to be here anymore. So there was just all this kind of funny stuff going on throughout, too. The Watchtower and Awake. These are two publications. Yes. They're the two magazines that we would bring to the door. They used to, I think they came out weekly or once every other week. And um, so that was what we used to preach. We were trying to get yeah. the literature in hand. Uh, we were supposed to read. I mean, as I was growing up, that's all you read was Jehovah's Witness literature. So I knew reading was like utterly boring. And then, and then as I got older and I started like, you know, reading other, like reading novels and then I got into journalism and I was like, these guys are writing 
at a grade, like a, a third grade level. And they're also, in, in the way they quote things, um, I, I would look up the original context of quotes that they were trying to prove their point, And it was just taken so out of context. And I was just like, oh my God, these, they, they, you know, manipulative and lying essentially. Yeah. What is pioneering? So I was a pioneer for a little while, it, you, which means you commit to work, uh, preaching 90 hours a month. Um, oh, wow. Now it's 60 hours a month. And uh, so, yeah, pioneering is a very high status thing to do in the Jehovah's Witnesses. If you're a pioneer, it's like you're a step up and you have like even more meetings with um, you have it's almost like you have a secret society within the Jehovah's Witnesses. Mm-hmm. You got to. It's yeah, it's uh, it's it's getting a bump up, uh, but you got to put in a lot of work for it. All right. So do you have to be a certain age for that? Uh, You you have to only be baptized. So and a lot of people. So I got baptized at 16. There are people who get baptized younger and they can be pioneers. Okay. And they could also be and they could also be young in disfellowship. There was a girl in my congregation who got pregnant at 15 and was disfellowshipped. And it's just like so now she now not only is she pregnant. And, you know, a teenager, she now has lost all social contact with anyone she had contact with. Yeah, let's talk about that. That's on my list, too. Disfellowship is a big deal. And what are you you were mentioning some of them just then? What are some of the consequences of getting disfellowshipped? I mean, what what do you have to do to get disfellowshipped and what's that process like? And then what are the, the ramifications of that? It's funny. I've never gotten disfellowship, so you don't have to write. <laughs> they, it, it, they. I was in. I was actually in a lot of those committee meetings, but I was kind of fighting for my life huh. and, uh, every single time. I probably have more committee meeting experience than almost any <laughs> Jehovah's Witness. So I was fighting to stay in whenever they would try to get me on these little offenses. But uh, what the, the the main the main thing is is they they um, I've learned that it depends regionally where you're at. I don't know how it is now, but back then, like say the '90s, it was regional. So certain congregation elders could have a bug up their ass and want you out of the way. And um, and there were few that were like kind of after me, and I was leading to stay in for my life um because what happens when you're disfellowshipped is you uh you're not supposed to build community outside the jehovah's witnesses so if you're if you work or if you're at school those people are going to die at armageddon and those people will take you away from the jehovah's witnesses so you so you can only associate with them minimally only at school in class or when you're at work everything else your whole social circle is Jehovah's Witnesses. If you're disfellowshipped, Jehovah's Witnesses can no longer speak to you. It's just complete cutoff. If you're over 18, your parents can't speak to you either. Acting under Jehovah's direction, we have decided to disfellowship you. You can write us a letter after six months to be reinstated. Can't speak to any Jehovah's Witness during that time since you're 
Still underage, you can live with your parents. What happened? He's getting disfellowship. What did you do? Give me the keys to the shop. If you want to go back, and many do, you go to every meeting, which is three times a week, and you have to just be silent. And you, it takes about a year, and then you can finally get what they call reinstated. And then that's, and then, so everyone who hasn't even looked at you for a year as you've attended meetings three times a week, all of them oh, come running wow. up to you and hugging you. These people that like, yeah. Um, and, the, and then there's people who leave and they just go off the rails and they're just like, okay, fine. So it's just uh, sex, drugs, orgies. And, you know, they end up good. They end up in a bad, bad place. And, and one of the characters that actually, uh, was loosely based on one of the um, one of the real people that was loosely based on one of the characters in the book. He was one of those people who got heavy into drugs, um, went off the rails. Uh, he had a kid. He was going to lose custody of his kid, and um, and I finally got in touch with him just to see how he was doing. And he said, "I can't talk to you." And I was like, "Okay, what's going on?" And he said, "Well, I just had my third drug bust and i have and i'm i'm in i'm in na right now and i needed to find my higher power and my higher power is jehovah so i'm going back to the jehovah's witnesses and it's very typical because they set you up to be and it's almost like rumspringa for uh amish people because they you know they don't rumspringa their their return rate is so high because they think the world is crystal meth and you know just crazy sex but they don't go like more than 10 miles away from there yeah they, they don't travel they don't go they don't they, they don't go about outside the bubble so it's very easy to get lured back in if you don't get lured back in uh there are things happen my friend gibby who was disfellowship killed himself Ooh. um and that was around 1992 and I asked the elders, um, I think I was 20, I, I was 22 at the time. I asked the elders um, for help because I was grieving Gibby. Sure. And they were just like, he was already dead to us. You, there's nothing to grieve because he was disfellowship. And I had suicidal thoughts at the time too. And so I didn't know what to do. So with their, with their just utter of, my, of what was going on, that's when I just went to the local library instead of the Kingdom Hall, and I started going there. And that's how I found books. So I'm, I'm monumentally have total gratitude to the elders for being pieces of shit to me because it led me on a path yes. that brings me here now. Well, you know, and I was thinking as I was reading, oh my God, what Gabe, get out, just get out and. If you're disfellowshipped, wow, that's great. You can move on. But but it's not. Your whole world is that little community. Like you were saying, you lose everything. So it's no wonder people try. Like he tried to get back in. He wanted to get back in. So it's no wonder oh, yeah. that you would do that since you've got virtually nothing. And you're this young person. What are you supposed to do? And at the same time, if you're not in, you will die at Armageddon. Right. Oh, there, yeah, and then there's that. Right. Even though I did a soft leave where I went and took radio classes, which was very frowned upon. And then I had a radio show at a college radio station for a while. Um, when I came back, they were like, um, you have to quit that. Mm. They were immediately like, get out of that because those people will bring you in. They, and they couldn't believe I didn't have sex when I was like 
uh, when I left for about a year. It was that I was getting drilled constantly. They're like, so you didn't have, you didn't even touch a woman's boob. And I'm like, no, I didn't. And they couldn't believe it. Cause, it, and I'm just like, no, I was still like following Jehovah's Witness protocol because I want to make sure I don't get killed by God in Armageddon, yeah. which is coming any second. And that's why I'm here coming right back to you. Talking about the interrogation, that aspect of the novel, I'm flashing on The Handmaid's Tale and that whole world of people snitching on each yeah. other and, and having these, these meetings with, and in the case of your book, meetings with the elders and the and the questions they would ask yeah. like you know with Gabe just Gabe with his father and him asking well did you did you touch her vagina did you touch her breast all of these really oh and people would call members would call yeah. Gabe's father who was an elder and confess all kinds of stuff it's just crazy the level how intrusive it got yeah and you have to do that because if you do sin then they call it a secret sin. So if mm. you have a secret sin, you might not make it through Armageddon. So then you have to confess. And that's okay. Yeah. And I, I confessed myself a few times. Um, so to certain things, there's this huge element of guilt in the novel. Like Gabe feels guilty for everything he does, but, but especially after he masturbates. So let's, let's go through a list of no-nos in the religion. What can't you do? You can't masturbate. What else can't you do? Yeah, I don't, well, um, I think they've lightened up on the masturbation thing a little bit. So, so like, as they were losing members, they were like, wait a second. Okay. I think, <laughs> I think people do masturbate. So let's just give it, let's yeah. give it a lighter, uh, a lighter tone and just be like, as long as you like, uh, are repentant and try not to do it or you know, don't do it to uh, pornography or something like that. Bill, there's something more you want to tell us. It's okay, Bill. You can tell us. You can confess to us right here. We're all brothers here. You can talk to us. Masturbation. I masturbated. <laughs> Even going to a rated R movie can get you in trouble. Um, and that, and one of the first things I did when I was like getting a little more free um, was I like I would go to the library and or and like watch Scorsese films and watch all these films mm. I was never able to see. And as I was leaving the library, it was almost like I was stealing contraband out of there, making sure no Jehovah's Witnesses saw the titles of the of the, of, the uh, of me catching up with like the mythology of the of humanity, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's there's no sex before marriage, but if you're um, if you're engaged or actively possibly going to be engaged with someone, you can kiss and you can make out. And so that's okay. kind of an angle where I got really good at making out because it would just be like, Oh yeah, this is, and, but actually in my heart, I did believe the women I was making out with were uh, potential like wives. What, what else is there? You know, you can get busted for smoking. You can, oh, you, you can't celebrate holidays or birthdays at all. Um, you, you really can't even like the astrology page and the newspaper. Uh, you can't even look at that. That's Satanism. And it's funny because I'm taking an astrology class right now, <laughs> but it's just cause I, it's just like, oh, that they were skewing it in a certain way, and it's not that. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah. No sex ed in school. 
Right. Um, we weren't supposed the, the to. Guy, yeah. Yeah, and the ahead. guy who called up, the guy who called up Gabe's father and said, oh, my wife and I accidentally had anal sex. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Accidental sodomy. Yeah, I don't know if you yeah. saw the movie, but those actors, I did. That, oh, those actors that did that were so perfect. It, it was, was hysterical. Just, yeah, I love those guys. Yeah. We know that Gabe has to go door to door with the elders or other church members, including Jasmine, another character in the book. I can just imagine how awkward that must have been. And you had to do it. What was, what's the worst experience you ever had going door to door? Oh, there were many. I mean, when I was a kid, a guy had a gun and he was in with my dad and he was cleaning his gun as my dad sat there and preached to him for, you know, um, so there, yeah, there was, uh, you know, it was, it was hard when I saw school friends, you know, yes. when I was at school, I was trying to, you know, it, it wasn't like I was, here was my loophole because they had this thing where they're like, um, well, what if you, what if Armageddon comes and you don't know about Jehovah and the loophole was, well, if they're ignorant, they'll be let into Armageddon, but then the, we'll have to study with them. And then the, and then they could become Jehovah's witnesses. And so mm. my, in my head, my loophole was, um, my loophole was, Oh, wait, if I don't tell them and they stay ignorant, they don't have to live the crap life that I'm living right now. Uh, and I didn't think it was a crap life. I just was like, why would why would they need the pressure that I'm under? So when I saw kids from school, especially the, you know, the, the wonderful, lovely women who I, you know, my testosterone was just pinging all over the sure. place. I'm a 15 year old knocking on their door and then they come to the door and I'm like, ugh. And you're there with an elder and they're like, well, tell her the, tell her the thing, dude, tell her the thing. And they're like, Tony. And they're like, tell her the thing. And I'm like, have you ever thought about living forever on a paradise earth? You know? Oh, just man. Like, and they would like, look at me and go, what's going on? And they'd be like, yeah. So. I think Gabe really felt like he was doing God's work. And yeah. I mean, there, did, yes. did you, did you feel that too? Cause yes, even though he was conflicted about it, but, and, and, well, mostly not so much, but yeah, tell me, so you did kind of feel like you were doing the right thing. I totally felt like I was doing the right thing. Actually, I, I firmly believed I had, I had faith. Um, yeah. and I was, I knew, yes, I got a little older. I knew there was something wrong. And mm -hmm. then after I started like reading books that, uh, at the library, which, um, kind of, I was the confuser because when you leave the, you know, when you're leave, when you're veering away from the Jehovah's Witnesses, you're doing like, you're getting to, you're getting into sex, you're getting into a party and yeah. all this stuff. And I'm the guy that goes to the library and they're just kind of like, wait, we don't know what to do with this. And they would come, <laughs> they would come to my house and see like, you know, 10 library books and they would just look at them and go, are you reading uh, all the publications from the, from uh, the Watchtower, which is Jehovah's Witnesses before you read those books? And I was like, of course. And they're like, okay. And that was kind of it as, as I'm sitting there reading Bukowski and Burroughs, right, you know, right. Henry Miller, and yes. just, uh, just understanding things on a different level. But I was, I was a firm believer, even when I, when I finally, when I was 29 or I was around 29 and I was still married because I, I was in a, I got married to a Jehovah's witness and I told her, I you know what? I can't do it anymore. I can't. And cause you could kind of be a loosey goosey Jehovah's witness and not, um, 
like go to some meetings and, and really try to get yourself in a situation. And that's what I did where just do enough where they don't bug you. Yeah. And then, and so that's, that's what I did is I pulled back a lot. And then they, and then they, with that, they, you don't get privileges, brother, the privilege thing. And I'm like, that's fine. I don't care. Um, so I just, I was just doing enough. But then I told her, I was like, I can't ever go again. And she's like, what? And I was like, no, this just, I just decided after reading, it was after reading a Che Guevara biography, actually. I read that. Really? Because, and I didn't even know who he was, but, you know, it's, I I wasn't too happy about all his kills. But earlier on when he was um, young and and a doctor and like trying to help the leper communities in um, South America, Mm-hmm. And then he started to speak out against the United States because of the slavery they were promoting in South America. So he was, he wanted to expose the hypocrisy of how can you say you don't, um, how come you, how can you say you, you know, you don't have slaves anymore when you're still promoting slaves and other slavery in other countries. Right. And that's when it all kind of clicked. And I went, how can I let these people, there's something wrong. I don't know what it is. And I've tried to ask the questions and try to figure out how I can be a good force within the, within the organization as they mm-hmm. call it. And there is none there. There's, there's no changing it. So now I got to pull back and I can't be there and raise. And I even, I, she's just like, can you just go just once a month? And I was like, no, cause I'll raise my hand when they say something bad that makes like, especially single moms and make single moms feel bad for not doing as much as some teenage kid. Um, and I would raise my hand and go, you don't even know what you, you don't know what that is because you don't have kids, brother. You know, it's just like, I could no longer listen to yes. rhetoric that they were pointing at certain people in the congregation. And that was the reason why I just went cut off. Mm-hmm. Um, I still firmly believed at that point. I believed it was the truth, but I also believed that something was wrong and Jehovah's going to forgive me. And he knows what he knows. Something's wrong. I, I still felt protected yeah. in a way and I still felt like it was the truth, but I knew something was wrong enough. And I also started to believe that Armageddon was still going to come, but everyone's going to make it through. And the Jehovah's witnesses got that wrong. Okay. So that, that I started to switch it up for a while until I, you know, some years later when I really started going, Oh no, I think it's bad. <laughs> I think, I think I got it. <laughs> Interventionist God, but I know, darling, that you do. I I, I tell people this. I don't know if we talked about it, but it's just like if if you have a belief system like that and it shatters, mm-hmm. all of a sudden it's like the land you're standing on turns into water, and water yeah. turns into cement. It's just like every it's just the whole it's like the matrix it's just everything just shifts and you have to like it's it's hard and that and this is why it's you know these ex-jehovah's witnesses are so susceptible to drugs and addiction and stuff it's because how do you cope in that situation how do you cope when everything shatters and it's hot it's not easy i was in therapy yesterday and she was kind of (laughs) because my my cousin's going to prison and I've, I've had other, you know, and, the, and that part of the family are Jehovah's Witnesses, except for my one cousin. And they want, they haven't talked to me ever since the book came out. 
I was going to ask about that. And it's just like, it was like zero, but they're going to everyone, every court date of his. And I'm just like, mm. oh, that's interesting. He's charged with kidnapping, rape, and uh, domestic violence. And I'm not, I'm not a felon. And when mm-hmm. I get out of prison, I'm not going to have to go around and tell everyone I'm a sex offender. Yeah. I just actually worked really hard to get a book published. And that's, you know, and it's just like. But that's just, that was not, not even not acknowledged. It was, I don't exist anymore. Yeah. And it's, and I'm like, they, they haven't even read it because they don't even understand like uh, that it's, yeah, it comes from tragedy, but in the end, it's a love story. Mm -hmm. I I wanted it to just be, this is a love story that just happens to be in the Jehovah's Witnesses and that's it. I didn't want, I didn't want it to be preachy in any way because other- yeah, other other books that I read by Extra Hubba's Witnesses are awful. It drives me nuts because I'm like, you guys are killing me um, because I want to do the opposite of that. I got out of preaching, so I'm not going to. So I'm done preaching. I'm just I want to tell I want to craft stories. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, Rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. So let's talk about music yes. in the novel because it's, it's a, a very important part of it. What role do you think music plays in the story? Oh, it plays everything in the story because music is the first. The music saved my saved me. It saved me as a kid when uh, and Gabe too. Yeah, exactly. I mean that all of every every musical reference is essentially is exactly what I was doing and what I was listening to, and what I was um. I even had my dad take us to go see uh, Fishbone and the Untouchables and Trouble Funk. Because for some odd reason in my dad's head, if the bands were black, they weren't demonized. <laughs> so it's just like, whatever, because he just thought soul. He's just like, right. oh, yeah. Oh, you're going to a soul concert? Okay, I'll take you, kids. And then it was just so great the minute the Fishbone comes on, people are stage diving, and we just got one over on my dad. The first time I heard Black Flag... I was just like these they're screaming exactly what I'm feeling in my heart and it's for some reason I was connecting to it it was very important and it probably saved me a lot to be able to know you know as you're like pubescent and all this stuff's going on and you're not supposed to think about anything and you're not you're stuck being bored 
you know, seven to 10 hours a week in Bible studies that are really boring. I mean, they said it's, it is brainwashing because they make it as boring as possible. And then you kind of, you kind of like nod off. And then those, that's how you get more information into yeah, your subconscious. Yeah, yeah. It's so, um, so even when I was at like the kingdom hall and I firmly believed, but in my head I would be playing, um, you know, I would, I would, be uh, remembering every single song to my war by uh, black mm -hmm. flag or, or uh, the suicidal tendencies first record. And it would just, I would just have that playing in my head in order to like cope with um, the continued monotony of what we mm -hmm. had to go through um, at, at those meetings. And it, it really meant everything to me. And that's, and that's how I found this radio station called KFJC, uh, which was a college station and that's how I found college radio. And then I didn't, and then the first time the elders were, the, the, um, the elders really screwed with me even before uh, Gibby died. And I, I just went and I took radio classes. I'm like, you could just go take a class and then you can be trained to be a, a DJ at a radio station. And I just went and did that. And that was, music was just, it's it just spoke to me and i and there's something and as i get older i realize music is almost like a divine communication because it's a it's a frequency that that we don't need to actually know all the words but we know the emotion um and there was and so the emotion is what just spoke to me on a huge yeah. level and it and it, it was it was a way for me to kind of go there's someone out there who understands me as I still believe in this fully a hundred percent, but there's, it was just that little glimmer. It was just a little light that was just like, you're okay, dude. It was, it was almost like, you know, it was almost like an uncle just putting his hand through my hair as I listened and just going, you're all right. You're going to be okay. And it's just like. Oh. That one, that's exactly what Gabe is going through too. But I love that the annual district convention for the Jehovah's Witnesses is held at the Cow Palace in San Francisco because that is a venue that's legendary for rock performances. I mean, the Beatles have played there, uh, The Who, David Bowie, Pink Floyd, Prince, Nirvana. It's like this place where, in this case, the sacred and the profane kind of collide. And, and, and that's interesting because when Gabe is there at the convention with his friends, they're out scoping the chicks. They're sitting there, you know, they're, oh, yeah. they're checking out this girl and that girl and they're getting phone numbers and, and Gabe's going to make mixtapes and mail them to these girls. And he, and he's listing the different girls and that person likes this music and this music and that person likes this music. And it really, music was really a way in the novel to kind of identify, I, I almost want to say your tribe, you know, you knew who who was hanging out with what kind of group based on what music they were listening to. And, and I, I'm, I just, I'm a, you know, I love the mixtapes thing because that's so eighties and you and I are about the same age. And I remember making mixtapes and you give them to people and it was a way to communicate. Yeah. And it was, it was, and it was, um, I mean, and then that was Gabe and that was me. I mean, there are mixtapes out there probably with, <laughs> <laughs> with all these ladies, but, um, yeah, and some ladies you met and you knew that they were they wouldn't accept something like a mixtape. They would be offended by it. And then there were other ones you kind of get a glimmer of, you know, oh, you know what Bauhaus mm -hmm. is. And then you're just like, okay, then what's you know, 
what's your address? And so I could. Bella Lugosi ah, is dead. And then I could just, you know, and I can make a tape that was kind of my feelings without like getting in trouble because I wouldn't be saying my feelings. So I love that there was that aspect in the book. And, and I love that Gabe learned to dance by watching Depeche Mode on MTV. <laughs> so did Tony. Yeah. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I had the VHS of uh, People Are All People. Right. And I was just like going to my first dance party going, trying to mimic uh, Dave Gahane's uh, dance moves. <laughs> probably, probably one of the worst um, teachers of dance possible because I could have went, I could have went somewhere else because he doesn't know how to dance, <laughs> but, but he's worldly. So of course he'd know how right, to dance. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, let's clarify this. So Gabe can't go to school dances, but he goes to what they call right. witness parties, witness dances. And mm-hmm. what's, explain the difference there. So, the, uh, and that was also congregation based. So the congregation I was in was very, do not do that. And there were other congregations, especially if you went to the Spanish congregations or the more black congregations, they would have dance parties and the dance parties were actually really cool. And, and, and they meant everything to me as a, as a teenager, because they would be chaperoned. There was no alcohol. Uh, they would be a little, uh, you know, it's, they would kind of, uh, curate that playlist so it didn't have any too much yeah. you know, worldly and but we got to dance our asses off And it's, a, and it's what we needed. And I got to meet, you know, I, I got to meet other like uh, brothers and sisters. We called everyone brothers and sisters, but I got to meet other brothers and sisters. And then after we dance, we go to the Denny's and, that, you know, get some uh, coffee and, you know, junk food and then go home. And it's just like, and, and it's just like, did you, you know, did you see Ursula? She's in Sunnyvale Congregation. Go Sunnyvale Congregation. It's just, and it's just, um, it was there. There was a sense of play, and there was also, and it was also, you know, the the purity of it was kind. Of, I look at it, and it was kind of endearing because we weren't there to get smashed out of our minds. We were there to dance and to just engage. And um, and I don't, you know, yes, there's limitations to that, but those limitations are kind of cool because you're there and you're present and yep. you dance. And there's a bunch of elders around. Okay, there's elders around. And you're usually friends with the elders too. And they're like, how's it going in your congregation, Tony? It's not like they're sitting there being uh, really strict, but they're around so nobody gets in trouble. So it's kind of like, so it's all, so when, you know, it's all to answer when the larger, uh, what they used to call like overseers will come to the congregation and go, I hear you doing dance parties. And they would be like, Yes, but we had five elders there and nothing happened. We just make sure this yeah. and this. And here's the curator playlist. And they would be like, oh, okay, there's nothing we can say about it. So, uh-huh. so it was, uh, yeah, I look back on those parties. And it's just, I, I still delight in those in those days of, you know. And, it's, and it also kind of brings me, you know, to like, you know, it's like, yeah. And then I used to go to dance clubs, but everyone was getting smashed. Yeah. And it's just like, and there's, it's too like, where's why can't we have a middle, you know, where, where's the, where's the middle? 
um, which was a lot less. There's more now middle where they, they have, um, you know, uh, there's more opportunity for like dance parties that where they where they create in a sober environment. Not that not that I'm, um, you know, against uh, drinking at all. I drink myself, but there's a beauty to just going to a place to dance and not having to have alcohol in your hand and to just be like, Hey, what's up? <laughs> you know? And I don't have to, I don't have to pretend I'm goofy because I had four drinks in order to get on the dance floor. I had, I had a diet Coke and what song is this? Let's go. You know? Well, I'm curious about what music would be acceptable for these parties and what music would not be acceptable. Yeah. It's interesting. They had, I guess they had a lot of soul, a lot of, um, you know, just uh, st- these these are the same things that would come up at weddings. At weddings, we can dance, and at weddings, they, they would even hire uh, so-called worldly DJs. Mm-hmm. But those DJs did have a playlist. You know, you're not going to play Erotic City at a. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that would be interesting. There are other Prince songs that were uh, were open to play, and um, you know, Michael Jackson was played a lot, uh, but he wasn't disfellowshipped until after the Thriller record because he grew up a Jehovah's Witness. Yeah, I, I knew he was a Jehovah's Witness, and I knew Prince was too. I, I wasn't clear on whether or not Michael Jackson had actually been disfellowshipped. I thought he put that disclaimer in the video for Thriller to try and separate himself from any any occult interpretation, but he did get disfellowshipped. No, but so what happened with Thriller was he was brought before the elders about that video. And then he wanted to, if I remember right, he wanted to pull the video. And Quincy Jones is like, we're going to kill you because this is is an organization built around you. Yeah. So for him to not get this fellowship, he just got reproved. He, the agreement was he would put that disclaimer. So that disclaimer is there because he was trying to stay a Jehovah's Witness. And then when the bad record came out, he had got, he'd either got disfellowshipped or he disassociated himself. Mm. And that's when he was um, excommunicated completely. And oh, wow. I mean, I just, I see, it's interesting because I see Michael Jackson, you know, the, the, and, you know, to go back to your first question of who I'd like to interview, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily want to interview Michael Jackson, but I just want to talk to him because I know the torture he was going through. And I know that he was being shielded because of celebrity and there's two there's two different um psychological things happening there and to come to grips with both of those is hard but i feel like if i could have had a heart to heart with him about you know jehovah's witness stuff that it may have it may have eased him up a little bit Mm. you know it it may have i mean you know he was a complete drug addict and alcoholic and it's just like He's just trying to numb down the immense, like, I'm going to die at Armageddon. I'm sure he still thought he was uh, going to die at Armageddon. I'm, I'm sure that was still in his heart. And and there's and there's just kind of no help because help wasn't accessible to him because he's a celebrity. So it's he's got celebrities around him. He doesn't have ex-Jehovah's Witnesses around him. And if he does, they're just kissing mm-hmm. his ass. 
and he and he just I think he just needed a real conversation with someone. still in communication with his right. family throughout his life so he he didn't get totally ostracized and most of his family he was i think he was more jehovah's witness than most of his oh, family so it was him okay. and his mom and then the and then the dad was not a jehovah's witness and so and then oh. like janet jackson she just got off free on everything because <laughs> she was just young so she didn't have to really do jehovah's witness stuff so i believe michael jackson was the one that was um, it was the Woodland Hills congregation in uh, the valley that he went to. And so it was kind of him and his mom and, and the rest of the family. I don't think they got baptized, but he got baptized. That's okay. It's a, a very different thing. So he got baptized. He would actually go preaching, mm -hmm. but kind of preaching in disguise a little bit. So people wouldn't know. Wow. Now I know Prince went door to door too. And I, I've never been able right. to figure out how he got away with being as sexy as he was and still being a Jehovah's Witness. Well, so he converted. So so he grew up Seventh Day Adventist, and then and then he left, and then there was erotic city. There was you know it was everything was just like um, groovy. And then uh, I think it was Larry Graham, the bass yeah. player, who's a Jehovah's Witness, was the one who got slammed the family stone. Right. He he got he 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 studied with Prince. Prince um, started to become a Jehovah's Witness, and as he was. In his early days, and this pissed me off so much about Prince, was uh, he knew the Bible, and um, and I don't know if he was baptized yet, but at his concerts, he would sing Erotic City, but he would not sing the chorus. He would have the audience sing oh. the chorus. And that was his little his little that was angle his disclaimer. of not getting buzzed. Yeah. yeah, it's like, what a piece of shit move Ooh. that is. And then and then later on, the, those songs were, later on, I think um, he probably got a talking to, and those songs were never in his set list again. It was... Was, yeah, it was it. He stripped it to the clean stuff. Okay. So. Yeah. Huh. Well, let's let's shift gears a little bit because literature is also a big part of this novel, and you've already talked about what it meant to you, and and it's, it was the same for Gabe. Once he got disfellowshipped, he was doing like you were doing. He was hanging out in the library, the school library, and then the public library because he couldn't find certain books in the school library. And he got turned on to Jack Kerouac and he got turned on to Henry Miller and Charles Bukowski. And those are such rock and roll writers. Uh, you know, I know that's not the genre um, like, you know, Kerouac's bebop, but I mean, rock and roll writers in the sense that there's that, that sense of anarchy, that rebelliousness in, in their work. And he just, fell in love with that stuff and it and it really music and literature became his salvation and it sounds like it was for you too i don't think i would be alive if i didn't um if i didn't find literature i think i think i think novels actually saved my mm. life and that's why i devoted my life to storytelling and just i mean it's it's i i, I tell people storytelling is my religion and it's you know that's that's why I don't like it when people ask me. So, what did you think of my book? And I'm like, don't ask me that question because I can't tell you any lies. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not going against the gods of storytelling. And 
and people who ask that are usually self-published authors anyways and they they know not to ask that yeah. you know but uh i just um it's so but but the yeah uh novels and you know, and even nonfiction, i really think it saved my life and it continues to save my life you know i continue I, it's it's not like it's not like I'm completely out of the Jehovah's Witnesses. That DNA is always in me, and that's that, and it's there. Now I just have to like kind of wrestle with the monster, and I I get to wrestle with the monster by writing and by reading every day, and just and just connecting on a visceral level via words, and it means it means everything to me, and that's probably why my students get driven nuts because. If it doesn't mean there's anything to you and you're just here for the grade, I despise you. I hear you. <laughs> so, now, I'm a sucker yeah. for any novel that has characters that are saved by art, by, by literature and music, because it is so powerful. And, and it, you yeah. know, and for people like us who, who really love it, 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 it does kind of usurp the, the religion that we grew up with. It becomes something that's a spiritual thing that is more soul fulfilling than what we were experiencing as kids sitting in church. Amen, sister. Yeah, brother. I know. (laughs) (laughs) So winding up here, I saw the movie. I liked the movie and this came out in 2017 and you can see it's streaming on Amazon prime, which is where I saw it. And it's directed by Eric Stoltz. Now, how did that come about? And were you involved in that? And what you wrote the script, but beyond that, I mean, how did that come about? Yeah, I was, um, it, it was optioned earlier by uh, Hunting Lane Films, and we worked mm. on the TV pitch that they were trying to pitch to HBO. And then something happened with one of their other projects with HBO, so that fizzled. And then, um, and then I got, it, it, and right when that option ran out, there were, th- there were three, three people questioning. One was the um, producers of Barbershop. They were okay. like, is this available? And I went, oh, my God, you get it. Because it could be a black film. It's because it, the Joe, it, it's, it could go either way because there's the, and the Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, it's just the, is more of a black community than a white community. So I was just uh, but I knew that I would be taken out of that process. And then I heard that Eric was reading the book. and. I'm a huge fan of Eric Stoltz. Yeah. So when I heard he was reading the book, I was like, that's the best day of my life. I'm like, oh my <laughs> God, my, he knows what my name is and he's reading my book this weekend. I just heard yes. him reading it over the weekend. And I didn't need anything more than that. And then I found out that um, I think he had, he was given uh, three different choices of something to pursue as his first film, first directing. And he, and he chose the book and he said, but we wow. got to have Tony write it because we can't lose the voice mm-hmm. and uh, and i was just like i am in um and so that's when the you know the joy dissipated the holy crap now i have to write a script so eric i want to start at the beginning and find out how did you become involved in making confessions of a teenage jesus jerk a friend of mine had read the book was quite taken with it sent me the book i couldn't believe that this subculture of Jehovah's Witnesses was really like that. I met with the author, it was all true. We thought we'd make a film. And here we are. And how was it like, I heard the author was actually there on set during some of the filming. What was it like having him there? Oh, he was there every day for every scene to make sure we got it right. 
and and he and Eric was just he was monumentally great, um, giving me notes, telling me where you know I was wrong. Um, he, he it's we had back and forths on certain things, and then and then I was uh, I was part of pre production and I was on set every day, um, and. That was wonderful. Uh, I really became close with Sasha. We're still we're still friends, um, mm-hmm. and he's the one who plays Gabe. And it was just, yeah. and Sasha's just such a beautiful human being and such a perfect casting for that role. He was great. Yeah, um, and he's just, uh, and it's like we connect. I'm just like, oh, this is just so <laughs> weird how much we connect. Um, and and on set, uh, there was you know Eric had questions for me and. I would just be there and at night I would read this, what was, what we were shooting the next day to make, you know, kind of anticipate questions. And sometimes it would, I would hear, we'd be in a uh, video village with our, mo- with the monitors. And then Eric would go talk to one of the actors. And then I would, and I would be like, I think they need me on this one, but I would just sit there and I would hear Tony Duchesne. And I'm like, oh, all right. That's and, awesome. then, and then it'd be like, okay, Tony, so we got this, this, and this. He, um, what if we do blank? And I'm like, that works. That doesn't work. That works. Yes. Yes. No. And he's like, thanks. Bye. And it was just, that's kind of how it went. Um, one of the most beautiful ones was uh, when Paul, the actor who played the father yeah. slapped Sasha and, and, that was that wasn't in the script. Um, that was actually an uh, Eric was like we are. <laughs> Eric was like he was he wasn't getting the reaction he wanted from Sasha in that scene. We were going over and over it. We were going overtime with it, and it was just like because it was the last shoot of the day for that day. And Eric comes over to the monitor and he goes, "Watch this." I'm like, "What?" And he goes, "Paul's gonna slap Sasha on this take." And I was like, "What?" And he didn't like, know no it was way. coming. No. I was like, yeah, I was like, did you tell Sasha? He's like, no, Sasha doesn't know. He's like, but what this is going to do is this is going to set up the next take. So when we do that take, Sasha's not going to know if he's going to get a slap. And that's the reaction we're going to Okay. So when, when Paul smacked Sasha, Sasha almost dropped to the ground. It was a, <laughs> it was a whack. And, um, and that turned out to be the take that made it into the film. And, and, and as Eric and I were walking back to where our cars were parked, He's just looking at me with the biggest smile. Like, all, yeah, I was like, I, I, it was just so much emotion. I couldn't even look at him. I'm like, uh. he's like, how you doing? I'm like, um, I want to fight someone and I want to have sex. <laughs> and he goes, he goes, well, well why don't you just masturbate when you get home and I'll see you tomorrow. And I'm like, uh-huh. <laughs> it was just like, because there was just so much pent up. Like, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. my God, we like yeah. just got there and it just it went next level. And even during, um. Cause everyone's trying to get their work done so they can like get the hell out of there. So when it was like, when it was, when they yelled cut, then all of a sudden everyone would start working to pack up their things. And, and then I'd be like, all right, uh, rolling, rolling. And then everyone have to stop and be quiet. Uh, but when cut was yelled on every single take, nobody was packing up anything. The whole crew was watching the scene unfold. It was just, uh-huh. so anyway, yes, I was part of that. And then uh, even in post-production, Eric was, um, wonderful to send me uh you to send me clips and then he find, and then he sent me the first rough cut and me and him had a cut me he uh, he wanted to add a few things to the story and there was something about the ending that i didn't agree with so i didn't know exactly how it's different yeah i didn't know how it was going to end and it um because we had to because the book in the book he says fuck god and mm-hmm. and then well way before we got into pre-production 
uh, someone said one of the producers wants fuck God taken out. And, uh, and, and, the, and they were like, and we're going to, we're going to try to get a different person. And we're going to try to get that producer out of here. And I was like, yeah. no, 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 hold on a second. That producer might actually be right. Let me see. And so I went through a rewrite and I was like, he can't say fuck God. That's too much in the mm -hmm. book. It works, but in the film, in the book, it works because he immediately prays and he's, he's still conflicted. So we need, so the scene needs to con just convey conflict and we don't need to know. And so I, I, I came back and I was like, it's out Well, I'm taking it out of the script. And, um, but there was a, there was a scene, a small scene filmed that was supposed to play after we cut to black. And that was the, that was, it's, you know, and the creative process is arguing and conflict. And so I was, I was fighting to not even have that scene shot. I was like, no, it's, it's, um, you know, the fingers, it's him. We don't know if he's praying or if he's doing stop time. And then we got face and then it's cut to black. I mean, I was just adamant about that. And, and they had filmed another scene after that that they thought was needed. And I didn't know when I fought, when I got the rough cut, I didn't know what I was going to see at the end. And I was just like, on that scene, I was screaming at the computer and I was just like, cut to black, cut to black, <laughs> cut to black. And it cut to black. And I was like, yes, yes. Um, it was, yeah, that was, uh, you know, one of the other happy days of my life, but I was just so, I was, you know, Eric is such a wonder, like he's a wonderful, like human being. And, and he understood the story on a level of a father and son. And that's how, that's what brought him into the story. So even the classes that Paul wears, like that's Eric's deceased father's pair of eyeglasses. Really? There's a lot of Easter eggs in there. Okay. What Eric was putting in that meant heavy things to him and what I was putting in that meant heavy things to me. So there, so the emotions were high for us and very different um, ways because he connected with the father-son relationship and then um and then even with sasha sasha was so wonderful because sasha is from uh i always got this i get this country name and he always laughs at me for not knowing as as berjana as as <laughs> he's in like like eastern russia or russia so he he was born in russia and then came to the united states so he's familiar with feeling other mm -hmm. and that's and that's what was so beautiful about him being cast and actually what's beautiful about him as a person is he connected with just feeling out of place because when he yeah. was in school he was the weird kid that spoke hebrew at home and was in english is his second language so it's uh so many things synced up on that where i just you know it's you, you i look at this and go you know, is it really a tragedy that I grew up a Jehovah's Witness? Who else gets to experience, um, be you know, be uh, creating a film? And it's just like, <clears throat> and and my my therapist brought this up uh, the other day because all it because I'm thinking about the film biz, so I'm just like, oh yeah, I got that under my belt, and I'm working on this right now, and this and this. And she's just like, do you realize there's a film made about your life? And it just Sometimes it doesn't click. I'm just like, mm. oh, no, no, no. That's just on my IMDb and that's out there and people can watch it. And that's like gone. And it's just like, and she kind of always brings me back and goes, you know, that was about you and your life. Yeah. And yeah. I'm like, oh, oh, wait. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's huge. I can't, thank you. It for is huge. And it must yeah. also be pretty freaky, too. 
it's um yeah because it's just i there's a disconnect as well because it's um it's you know the most important part of that which i learned a lot was the process it wasn't the outcome and i'm and it's just like oh man that you know being on set being tired um having days where you're irritable having days where you know the associate producer and the craft services are fighting with each other and you just want to kill them <laughs> and um we probably should <laughs> but, <laughs> but um but it still all came together it's just like we were at war you know you're yeah. in the, you're in the trenches it's the it is forced intimacy and where we and our accommodations uh, we were at a big house so i was staying with the actors so ah. So I would talk to Sasha. I'd be like, "Hey, I need to talk to you," and I'd be like, "All right," because I would like try to stay away from him at night because I know he was preparing for the next yeah. day. But then he'd be like, "Can we go over the scenes for tomorrow?" And I'm like, "Yeah, that's fine." That's and cool. So it was, yeah, it was just it was extreme intimacy on the highest level. Yeah. Did your parents see the film? Yeah, they did. Um, they, 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 they. they <laughs> it's funny because I think they were just so happy that they had you know, big stars playing them. And then, <laughs> and then, um, and then they saw it again at another film festival. And, um, and then that's when my mom said, I can't, um, uh, really, cause it was doing a few screenings and we did Q and a and Eric and ever, and the, everyone came out for that one. And, um, and then she was like, I can't watch that film again. I'm like, it's okay. You're, you know, you're not something, this film is not here to make you feel comfortable in any way at all. This is, you know, and I, but I couldn't even watch it again. Cause it's just, it's, I was like the, the other, that, that was like the last screening I saw. And then what I did at the next screening was they, I introduced it. And then, um, and then I sat in back for the first act and just wanted to hear if the audience were getting, was getting the jokes and, and they were laughing like right on cue. Um, and I'm like, okay, good. We did it right. And then I went to a bar and I had, I just hung out, <laughs> I had a couple of drinks and then I came back for Q and a, and I never understood why anyone wouldn't just sit there and watch their whole film with an audience. And, but now I totally understand that it's just, it's the intimacy is so much. Yeah. It's just, it's like, it's there. Let, let it be for them. And it's too much for me. I'm going to go hang out and have dinner or something and then come back for the question and answer. Well, Tony, thanks so much for coming on the show. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. This is a blast. Yeah, this, was this was fun. For more information on Tony and his podcast, Drinks with Tony, go to drinkswithtony.com. Find him on Twitter and Instagram at Tony Duchesne and pick up a copy of Confessions of a Teenage Jesus Jerk wherever you buy books, and you have to come on the show again when your next novel comes out. Oh, I'll be there for sure. I'll be flying to your house. All right. <laughs> Partay. My yard crew just showed up, so I've got people mowing right outside my damn window oh okay hang on a second because i got someone knocking on my door okay. and i gotta tell them to get the fuck okay. away too oh the joys of podcasting stay tuned for upcoming episodes of rock is lit to hear from more great rock novelists and special guests who will offer commentary on the music or musical events featured in these novels 
If you like what you hear, subscribe, follow, and spread the word. And check out the Rock is Lit Vault on my website for news, bonus material, and outtakes from episodes. Until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is lit. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.